we need to take Satan seriously, but we don't need to be afraid of him because if God's on our side, who can possibly be against us? And the who can possibly be against us includes Satan. So we need to take him seriously, but we don't need to fear Satan. One of the most memorable quotes in the 1995 film, The Usual Suspects, came from the Kevin Spacey character of Verbal Kent. He also happened to be Kaiser Sosa. I don't want to spoil the movie, but since it's been 15 years now, you should have seen it by now if you didn't want it spoiled. But anyway, he's a very incredible character. But of all places that we think we might find something of a theological nature that actually makes a lot of sense, this is one of the most memorable lines in that film. The greatest trick that Deborah ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Well, angels exist. And Satan exists as well. Angels are mentioned in 34 of the 66 books of the Bible. They appear evenly in 17 Old Testament books and 17 New Testament books. Actually, angels are mentioned 273 times in Scripture, 108 times in the Old Testament, 165 times in the New Testament. In the Gospels, Satan is referenced 29 times. But the significance of that number is that 25 of the 29 times, Satan is referenced by our Lord himself. Christ certainly understood that Satan existed, and he understood that he was the enemy of the believer. Angels are prominent in some of the most significant events in human history. For example, they shouted for joy at the creation of the earth. That's Job chapter 38, verse 7. Angels protect and proclaim the holiness of God. It's Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, Isaiah 6, 3, and Revelation 4, 8. Angels were given the special privilege of both announcing the coming birth of Jesus and announcing that Jesus had been born. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Chapter 24 of Luke, verses 4 through 7, announces the resurrection, where angels announce the resurrection of Jesus. The contemporary obsession of angels, Satan, demons, and exorcism makes the discussion of this topic, I think, extremely timely. In the 1973 film, The Exorcist, we have the renewed interest, or the, our culture took a renewed interest in the whole idea of demonism and exorcism and demon possession and what it might mean to the individual. But it didn't stop there. It seems like almost every year there's a film that comes out or films that come out with regard to demons, demonism, or exorcism. Last year, Tom Hanks, one of the most serious actors of our time, starred in the sequel to The Da Vinci Code, which was called Angels and Demons. And this month, if you've been paying attention, Anthony Hopkins, another premier actor will start in a film called The Right. The film is being marketed as a psychological thriller based upon true events. It claims, and I quote their advertising, it claims to uncover the devil's reach into one of the most holy places on earth, the Vatican. We, we can debate that one way or another, but that's what the film claims for itself. Given Hopkins' star power, I'm sure this film's going to get some play. I'm sure there are a significant number of people that are going to see it. At the very least, it should generate some, some conversations. So we need to know how to talk to people about this. 
when they ask us questions. Is this biblical? Do these things really happen? But most of these films, most of these types of films, miss the mark biblically and instill an unreasonable fear of angelic beings. That's the purpose of the film. It's a psychological thriller. It's supposed to instill fear, fear in us. But most of these instill an unreasonable fear of angelic beings, but more specifically, fallen angelic beings that we call demons. As always, a balanced biblical view is very helpful when it comes to this issue, to say the least. So before entering into the specifics of what Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, when it comes to spiritual warfare and the battle of the heavenlies, and our relationship to it, and the defensive fight that we should fight, it'll be helpful to take a brief look, and we're only going to be able to do it this week and perhaps into next week, but a brief look at what the Bible teaches as a whole with regard to the subject of angels, Satan, and demons. Satan, of course, is a created being. Angelic beings are created beings. Demons are created beings. It should be a comfort to know that angels, at least the non-fallen angels, we call them the elect angels, function on behalf of God's redeemed children. Angels function biblically on behalf of God's redeemed children. That's Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14. They appear frequently in Scripture to guard and to aid God's people. There is no specific verse anywhere in Scripture that indicates that every single individual has a guardian angel. I think you can make a case for that. You can make a cumulative case for it. We can also make a stronger case that every child has a guardian angel. But I happen to hold that every individual does as well because of the cumulative case. But if you ask me what verse are you pointing to, I couldn't point you to a specific verse because I don't think there is one. But the cumulative case is that it's the function of angels to aid and to guard redeemed people. Angels also provide a powerful example of what it should be like when we worship God. We see that in Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. The study of angels reminds us that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. That's our passage, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. There are evil angels. Now, one in specific but he has minions that follow his orders. There are evil angels that have as their goal in their existence to destroy human beings. Particularly, human beings who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That is their function in life. Now, that ought to get our attention. I don't want it to make you afraid. If that's what happens, then we have not fulfilled our function tonight, but it should get our attention. We should not be afraid of demons or Satan himself. No matter what the movies portray, we should not be afraid of Satan himself if God is with us, if we are walking in fellowship with God. Now listen, if you choose to go it alone and get outside of God's protective reach, as we studied last week, then you're on your own, and you may very well be devoured by that roaring lion. But as long as you're walking in fellowship with God, you have nothing to be afraid of. Paul concludes the same thing when he says, if God is with us, who can be against us? If God is on our side, who can possibly line up against us? The answer is no one, including Satan. It's a great encouragement for me personally, and I hope for you too, to know that the Holy Spirit that we have within us 
is greater than the evil angels. And we will ultimately triumph. I've read ahead, and so have you. We win, Satan loses. The idea, though, is, is to stay on the right side and make sure that we're walking in fellowship with God. This dovetails fairly nicely with what we studied on Sunday morning. Yes, there is a connection between the believer walking faithfully with God and God's divine protection. Sure, there are times when God will intervene and act outside the, the norm. Certainly, He has the right to do that. And sometimes believers are protected because another righteous believer is praying for them. So keep praying for your kids. Keep praying for that wayward friend that they might have a hedge of protection around them. But the norm is, the norm biblically is, in order to have God's protection, we need to be walking in fellowship with Him. Angels also serve as a warning. Think back to the pre-human being time. Angels were created in perfection, yet they sinned. They fell. That's Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 15, a passage that I believe is speaking specifically about the fall of Satan. So a study of angels should lead us to treat them with a healthy respect while being careful never to make an angel, and now we're talking about elect angels, never to make an elect angel an object of worship. That's Jude 9 in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Never worship an angel. I had a friend one time that uh, every time I would see her, she would have angel necklaces, she had angel jewelry, an angel bracelet, she had angel bumper stickers on her car. And one, one day I said, you, you seem like you're a very spiritual person. Oh, yes, I am a very spiritual person. I said, well, what do you think of Jesus Christ? I noticed you, I noticed you, you think a lot of angels. What do you think of Jesus Christ? She had never really dealt with that situation in her life. Just because someone is enamored with angels doesn't mean that they're Christian. Now, there was a show that was on a number of years ago. It's a very wholesome show, and, and I liked it for that purpose. It's called Touched by an Angel. But the few times, and I'll admit it was the few times, but the few times I watched the show in its entirety, Jesus Christ was never mentioned. In fact, God was only mentioned obliquely, obliquely, at that. So, in, in my mind, and please don't take offense at this if you were a fan of the show, I mean, it was a high-quality show, to, to, no doubt. But in my mind, that show did more harm than good. Because it got people interested in spiritual things, but the wrong spiritual things. That's like saying, I want somebody to be interested in religion. Well, there's some pretty bad roads you can go down if that's the only standard that you have. So, we need to be careful when it comes to angels. Keep them in the proper perspective. They should never become an object of worship. More on that in just a moment. And finally, a study of angels should bring with it a deep gratitude for our own salvation. Because Jesus Christ, the God-man, not the God-man angel, but the God-man came to earth to pay the penalty for human sin. Jesus Christ did not pay the penalty for angelic sin on the cross. Does that make you feel special? We ought to. But that is a very special event. Jesus did not become... He is not forever the God-man angel. He's the God-man. And that shows you the significance of humanity. Angels can only admire our salvation that we so fully enjoy in Jesus Christ. Now, word of caution, 
is in order as we undertake the overview of the study of angels. Paul Bart, the Swiss theologian, referred to the study of angels, and I quote him now, as the most remarkable and difficult of all, meaning all the subjects of systematic theology. The most remarkable and difficult of all. Millard Erickson explains the reason why the study of angels is so difficult. And again, I quote him, Although there are abundant references to angels in the Bible, and I'm quoting Erickson now, although there are abundant references to angels in the Bible, the nature of those references is not such as to make them very helpful in developing an understanding of angels. Every reference to angels is incidental to some other topic. Now, I pause. Think about that for a moment. Every time you see an angel come up, the, the, the fact that the angels there is not necessarily the primary idea of the passage. For example, angels are there to announce the birth of Christ. Well, it's not about the angels. It's about the birth of Christ. You see the point. So, Erickson says, every reference to angels is incidental to some other topic. They are not treated in themselves. God's revelation never aims at informing us regarding the nature of angels. When they are mentioned, it is always to inform us further about God, what He does, and how He does it. I used to teach angelology at the College of Biblical Studies. That was one of the subjects that I was frequently assigned. One of the reasons I was assigned to this, a lot of the other guys didn't like to teach it. Because in the study of angelology, perhaps more than any other of the theological subjects, we have to use this phrase. While we can't be certain about this. Well, no specific passage tells us the answer to that question. You see, when it comes to angels, we have to make a cumulative case. Now, the Bible does reveal something about angels, and it's incumbent upon, um, upon us to know something about it. And we sure better know something about it when Paul says, that these angels are out to destroy the spiritual life of believers. And Peter the same. The Bible offers few prescriptive or declarative statements about angels. But from their activities, from the biblical record of their activities, we're able to gain legitimate inferences. There are a sufficient number of these inferences so that we can make a cumulative case for the accurate understanding of angelic beings. But they're not the same as, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should never perish, but have everlasting life. For by grace you've been saved through faith, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Those are declarative statements. What we learn about angels comes from inferences that we have to get from a variety of sources. I think Calvin's words might be helpful in this introduction. He said that let us remember here, as in all religious doctrine, that we ought to hold one rule of modesty in sobriety. This goes not just for the study of angels, but this goes for the study of all theology. Let's be careful. I'm going to start again. Let's remember here, as in all religious doctrine, that we ought to hold one rule of modesty and sobriety. Not to speak or guess or even to seek to know concerning obscure matters, Anything except what has been imparted to us by God. I'm going to pause there. I'll get back to Calvin in a moment. You know, that's a rule that we ought to consider following. Because sometimes we get so wrapped up in minutia that the Bible doesn't really give you an answer to one way or another. And we let our spiritual lives become shipwrecked because we're not focused on the big things. We need to make sure we keep our focus on the big things. And the Bible does give us specific 
declarative statements about everything that really is important for us to have that kind of information about. Now, you may be thinking, well, why are we studying angels? If, if there are no specific things about there is enough information that we need to know who we're dealing with. Plato said, know thyself. I think the Apostle Paul would have said, know your enemy. You need to know what you're up against. Furthermore, Calvin goes on, in the reading of Scripture, we ought, we ought ceaselessly to endeavor to seek out and meditate upon those things that make for edification. Let us not indulge in curiosity or in the investigation of unprofitable things. And because the Lord willed to instruct us, not in fruitless questions, but in sound godliness, in the fear of His name, in the true trust, and in duties of holiness, let us be satisfied with this knowledge. For this reason, if we would only be duly wise, we must leave those empty speculations which idle men have taught apart from God's Word concerning nature, orders, and the number of angels. The theologian's task is not to divert ears with chatter, but to strengthen consciences by teachings that are true, sure, and profitable. Therefore, bidding farewell to the foolish wisdom, let us examine the simple teaching of what Scripture and the Lord would have us know about His angels. So what about angels? Where did they come from? Well, the first thing we need to realize is that angels are created beings. God created angels. And as creatures, they are not to be confused or elevated to the status of God Himself. Never, ever, ever. They are not self-existent beings. Though the Bible does not record the specific process whereby angels were created, it does make it clear that God created them. In Psalm 148, verses 2 through 5, the angels are listed along with the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars all that are products of God's creative activity. Like these other elements of creation, they are exhorted to praise God because they themselves are created beings. You see how silly it would be for us to praise an angel. An angel is a created being just like you and me. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him, sun, moon, Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord. He commanded, and they were created. He commanded, they were created. He set them in place forever and ever and gave a decree that will never pass away. That's Psalm 148, verses 2 through 6. Angels are created beings. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in, with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Angels didn't exist apart from God. Independently of God, they were made by God. And without Him, nothing was made that has been made. That's John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Read this way. For by Him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and Invisible, exactly, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Those are terms that the Apostle Paul often used for angelic beings. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Angels are part of God's created order. There is never any justification for any created being worshiping another creature. 
All worship is directed toward the Creator. This is significant. Jesus allowed Himself to be worshipped, didn't He? Well, that's odd, because Jesus was the Creator. He was worthy of worship. No other human being should have ever accepted worship. Now, I know sometimes you know, we get starry-eyed and say, for example, with regard to our wives, you know, we worship the ground that they walk on. Well, of course, we know that's a metaphor for the fact that we love them very much. It's not to be taken seriously. No one would actually worship dirt. That's something that God has created. Of course, that saying actually means we, we are deeply in love with the one who's doing the walking. But, but we need to remember these are just metaphors. These are poetic metaphors. But we don't worship any other human being. If we do, then we have a problem. You see, then, then we realize that person's on a higher shelf than God, and we have a big problem. When were angels created? We said they're created beings. When were they created? Well, we can't say for certain. But we know that they were created before the earth was created. While the answer to this problem is not going to alter your spiritual life, it does play a part in our understanding of the fall of Satan, because it depends on when the angels created us or when he fell. The conservative theologian, and by conservative I don't mean Republican or Democrat, what I mean is a conservative theologian is one who holds that the Word of God is inerrant, that it's true, that it can tell us everything that we know for, for living life in a godly way. Conservative theologians generally hold one of two views. One is that the angels were created on day one. It's recorded in Genesis chapter one. The second view is that angels were created before day one of creation in Genesis chapter one. Uh, no matter what view you hold, both of these views have to acknowledge that angels were present at the creation of the earth. I happen to hold a second view. You know that if you went through our study of Genesis with me. I hold a second view that angels were actually created before the accounts that are mentioned in, in the six days of creation. In Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7, when Job is, is getting a, um, a lesson from our Lord about being sassy to God, this is, this is in that section where God is, is just running off several questions all in a row. He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? He's talking about to Job. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its fittings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Where were you when I laid the foundations for the earth? So we know at the very least, we have to say that angels were created before God created the earth. Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7. So what about the nature of angels? If they're created beings, then what do we know about their nature? Angels are spirit beings. They're also personal beings. We find out in Scripture that they are moral beings. We find out later on that they're powerful beings and that they are distinct from, and at least at this point, higher than man. Now, later on, the, the role is going to be reversed because of our relationship with Jesus Christ and what I mentioned to you a moment ago, that Jesus is not the God-man angel. He's the God-man. Because of our association with him, that will be reversed someday. But right now, they are distinct from and higher than man. And we'll also see later on that angels don't reproduce. But angels are... Spirit beings. Throughout human history, human, an, human encounters with angels has been the exception, not the norm. 
So if you've never encountered an angel outside of your dear sweet wife or husband, throughout human history, these encounters with angels have been the exception, not the norm. If you haven't encountered one, don't feel bad. Angels are normally unseen because they are spirit beings. That doesn't mean they're not there, but it means they're unseen. However, God has endowed them with the ability to take on human form and function as they carry out God's purpose. Angels are ministering spirits. Angels are called ministering spirits, scripturally. This indicates that they don't have physical bodies like you and like me. Are not, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? That's the verse we mentioned a minute ago. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Angels do not possess a physical body as we do. But they can assume human form and function temporarily. Again, angels are normally invisible. It's rare in the scriptures when an angel becomes visible. However, scripture does clearly indicate that they have the ability to take on human form and function. Not just human form, but human function in carrying out God's assignments. At least that goes for the elect angels carry out God's assignments. Now, whether or not fallen angels, and listen carefully, because this, I think, will, will help perhaps clear up some filmography that perhaps might be bad, whether or not fallen angels can take upon human form at the behest of Satan to carry out his will is very debated. They can indwell the bodies of unbelievers, but that's a different matter. Scripturally, we had times when angels took upon the form of a human being. You remember we studied it already in Genesis chapter 18. Remember there were three that came along. One turns out to be the angel of the Lord, which we understood to be Jesus Christ himself. But the other two were angels. But you remember what they did. They visited Abraham. They, they conversed with him, human function. They ate. So they weren't just like some sort of uh, emanation or some sort of optical illusion. They actually had the ability, at God's command, to take on human form so they looked like a human being. We also see by the time we get to Genesis chapter 19, there's only two of them. The Lord has left, and the two angels still look like human beings, apparently very handsome human beings. It's been long debated whether angels have some sort of spirit body. Now, I know that's almost oxymoronic, but... God is spirit. He's pure spirit. But theologians who study such things do believe that angels have some form to them, although it's not a physical body. In other words, they would be recognizable to one another, but it's not a physical body like you have and like I have. Now, this, this does have some overflow in application. Sometimes people will ask me, well, what about my loved one who has passed away? And we haven't yet gotten to the resurrection. But what's going on with that person? Do they have a body? Well, the answer, I believe, is yes. They have some form, although it's not the ultimate form. It's not the resurrection body yet. And it's not the corrupted form that we have down here. But it's some type of interim form. 
Well, if you can understand that, then maybe you can understand what I'm talking about when it comes to angels and their bodies. They are spirits, but they have some form that apparently can communicate, can think, can feel. We'll talk about that probably next week. But they can do all these things, but they have some sort of form. But it's not like ours. It's not made up of atoms like we have here on Earth. This idea whether humans had form and, I mean, whether angels had form or have, and exactly what the form is, was of great interest to the medieval church. Great interest. They debated it back and forth, but I'm not sure we can be or that we need to be dogmatic on this issue. But at the very least, we must say that they do not possess physical bodies as we do. So when we see the angels in Genesis 18:19, that is an angel that has assumed temporarily the form and function of a human being. We also know that angels are not subject to death. Luke chapter 20, verses 35 through 36. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. Now that's speaking of human beings. In Luke chapter 20, verses 35 through 36. So in this sense, human beings, after we leave this life, or compared to the angelic beings in that way, in that they were not married, nor will they be given in marriage. There won't be any marriage celebrations in heaven except for one, the big one, and that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It would be reading too much into this passage for us to say that there is no longer any relationship in heaven between those who are husband and wife here on this earth. So I've talked to more than a few people about that who have lost husbands or wives that they love deeply. They so, say, well, I'll never see them again, or I'll never be able to be with them again, or you know, I won't have a relationship with them again. The Bible doesn't say that. Think of this for a moment. The Bible describes the Old Testament God, the, the God of the universe, the God who created, the God of the New Testament as well, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see some significance there? Grandfather, father, grandson. Isaac will always be forever and ever, the offspring of Abraham and Sarah. It's unlikely that God would would say, okay, Sarah, you go live in this part of the universe over here, and Abraham, you live in this part of the universe over here, and I think you're going to have to have visitation with Abraham on these years, and for these years you're going to go visit Sarah. No, that's, that's not what this passage says. That's why we, we can't read too much into a particular passage. What this passage is really referring to, I believe, in, in terms of more meaning than, than just speculation, is that whether we like it or not, there is an authority structure in the marriage relationship on earth. There will be no authority structure in heaven when it comes to a marriage relationship, or that relationship, it won't be called a marriage relationship, but that relationship, because it won't be necessary, we all are subordinate to Christ's leadership, but in an unhindered way. I would just caution you not to use this verse, the Luke 20 verse, as a verse to, to cause unnecessary stress on either a widow or a widower who has had a husband or wife go to heaven before them that they love deeply. 
I, I firmly believe that there will be some special relationship there. It won't be called the same thing. It won't function in the same way because there's no household leadership there. And other, other spiritual elements won't be the same either. But it'll be better. It'll be better. One very, very dear lady in our church is a widow who loved her husband so dearly. She, to this day, misses him terribly. I mean, we're on our front porch one day. And, and she said, with regard to going to heaven and seeing her husband, and she said, yeah, but it just is not going to be the same. It just won't be the same as what it was when we were on earth together. And she actually was sad about the whole process. Listen, God doesn't do anything with regard to the believer who's walking in fellowship to make you sad when it comes to eternity. That should never be the point. You should look forward to going there and to whatever's going to happen there. And I said, no, it won't be the same. It'll be better. Whatever the relationship is, and I don't know what it's going to be, but whatever it is, it's going to be better because God's going to design it. So have no fear. You don't have to fear death for what's going to happen up in heaven and that you're beloved, whether it's a husband or a wife. It's just going to be in some other part of the universe. However, your kids are still going to be your kids, and there's going to be this you know, judge that has to rule over when you get to see that child. That's, that's absurd. That's totally absurd. Now, there are some, some people actually that cling to this verse. <laughs> I didn't want a divorce for all for my wife and him, but I don't want to have anything to do with her. Guess what? That's not true either. So, so don't get your hopes up on that. That is not true. One of the neat things about heaven is there won't be any Olsen natures there. No Olsen natures. And so there won't be any of the silly things that would cause an interruption in fellowship between husbands and wives, or between friends, or between people of different nations. Anybody of a different skin color, anybody of a different uh, language. So it's going to absolutely be wonderful. So angels are not subject to death. Angels who fell with Satan are subject to a type of death that the Bible would describe as eternal judgment. But apparently no angel, no angel, either elect or evil, will experience death in the way that we understand death. So angels are spirit beings. They are ministering spirits. They have no physical body, but they can and have in the past assumed human form and function temporarily and the angels are not subject to death. When we reconvene next week, we'll talk about the personal nature of angels. We'll see that they have intelligence, emotion, will, and that they can do service. But we'll have to hold off on that until next week. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. We thank you and we are humbled that you sent your Son to die for us as human beings. Heavenly Father, we recognize that angels are your creation as well, and we respect them, but we should never fear them and help us never to worship them, but to keep our eyes firmly placed upon you where our focus should be. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.